Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. Beth Stovell, a member of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with doctors Claudia Herrero Montero, Candice Smith, John Stovell, and Kevin Hill. And I'm Dr. Ryan Reed. Today I'm very pleased to have with us Dr. Stephen Tyra. Stephen Tyra holds a PhD in historical theology from Baylor University and currently teaches history, literature, and Latin at Live Oak Classical School in Waco, Texas. His research centers on early modern Switzerland and France. His recent book is Neither the Spirit Without the Flesh, John Calvin's Doctrine of the Beatific Vision, published with TNT Clark's Bloom. Bloomsbury's Studies in Historical Theology in 2024. This conversation today will have three uh, sections or movements. We'll begin by discussing Steve's scholarship. Then we'll explore uh, how this connects to the Christian life and the life of the church. Lastly, we'll talk about marginalia. Um, These are fun questions that help us to get to know Steve a bit as a whole person. While these marginalia sometimes may seem uh, separate from um, someone's academic lives, we believe that these are important aspects of uh, of a person and form uh, scholars and uh, people in important ways. Steve, welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. So Steve, we like starting with an icebreaker. So why don't you tell us something interesting about yourself that most people don't know? So while I make my living as a teacher and a writer, I try to make my living as a teaching and writer. My true love is cooking. Uh, I'm really enthusiastic, particularly about cooking outdoors. So I live in Texas and, and it's just part of the culture, but I love, I spend hours grilling and smoking and roasting all kinds of various things. And my secret dream is, is to quit teaching and scholarship and go on the competitive barbecue circuit. I haven't made it happen yet, but the dream, the dream is out there and someday I may achieve it. Wow. It, yeah, that's a new thing to me, Stephen. So like, what does that look like? Is it on TV, this competitive barbecue? As a matter of fact, it, not only is it on TV, I was approached recently, sort of tongue in cheek, although I think maybe a little seriously, by our admissions counselor at Live Oak, the school where I teach. Yeah. And I, I was doing an outdoor event with kids. Um, it was part of our reformation unit. We were cooking sausages um, okay. because we were studying Zwingli. Yeah. Uh, and she came to me, she's like, you know, they have competitive barbecue teams. I'm like, really? I'm like, yeah, apparently there are big statewide championships. You can win scholarships to, to Texas public schools uh, by participating in this. And she was trying to get me to like sign up as a coach, which is a pretty big commitment. Uh, but it's, it's a very real thing. And wow. It's a sport, and only Texas could make you know eating a sport. But there it is. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, and so, it's, you know, if it doesn't work out as a scholar, that is always there as a, as a plan that's right. B. That's, I will yeah. say things I love about Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, do you have a favorite recipe, Stephen? So uh, the two things I make the best are um, skirt steak, and uh, my daughter really loves my marinated uh, chicken nachos and tacos. We we will grill the chicken together. Wow! Um, I'm working on sort of ex- more advanced things from there, but the, yeah. those are the two go to dinners. Wow, that sounds that's, amazing. That's so wonderful. Yeah, we love um, we love grilling here. Um, we don't get to do the slow smoking smoker kind of cooking here as much because it's just not as common in ta- in, Cal- in uh, Canada where we are. But oh man, I I love me some barbecue. So that's <laughs> wonderful. Um, well, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Um, and we're going to transition to asking you some questions about scholarship and how you see your vocation as a scholar. 
So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to become a scholar and a teacher and your journey studying Calvin? I think I've always known I wanted to be a scholar in some sense. Uh, I didn't think I would end up being a historical theologian. I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. I, I became a Christian when I was um, almost 18. So, wow. um, but scholarship was, was always a goal. My, um, both my dad and my grandfather, um, I was really close to, were professors. My dad was an adjunct professor of law for a time when I was a kid. And so my earliest memories were going to see him teach or pick him up at the community college where he was adjuncting. Uh, my grandpa also taught law and um, taught history as well. And I, I don't know exactly when, but it sort of got in my DNA early that, that teaching and scholarship was, was a good thing to do. And I also seemed to be okay at it and, and couldn't throw a ball straight. So it, it became apparent to me early on that I needed to somehow use my brain if I was going to make it in the world. In terms of my journey into Christian scholarship, it really began almost immediately when I became a Christian. I, I became a Christian at a Presbyterian church and people started handing me books because that's what Presbyterians do apparently. And so I read Augustine and Calvin pretty early on and, and became increasingly fascinated. I didn't study theology though, as an undergrad at UC Davis, University of California, Davis, um, where I went to school, um, studied English literature, medieval literature mostly. And it was really a toss up until the end, whether I was going to go do a PhD in medieval literature or go to seminary. And seminary ended up winning out because I sensed a, a call to do that. But it I'll admit it was close. But it was I think I've always wanted to work in the humanities, work with books, work with words. It, it's always been sort of where I've lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Um I, I came from a literature background too and moved into theology as kind of the the step from that. So it's really interesting to see like the love of words and the and how that can flow into the other things that you do. Yeah. And um Stephen, what was the journey to Calvin in particular? Like how did you get well, I mentioned I Christian journey began at a Presbyterian church, although um so in a way it's stereotypical, although I resisted it for some time. So Augustine was my first love. I read City of God throughout my undergrad year, not not as an assignment, just sort of on the side and was sort of enraptured by that. And, and then when I got to seminary, I actually sort of fell in love with Luther and, and even toyed with sort of Lutheranism for a time mm-hmm. um, and, and still have affection for Luther in some ways. I've read a lot of Luther and even written about him. Um, but by the time I got to PhD and I was really... Uh, really sure I wanted to write in eschatology on the last things and started researching various 16th century figures, kind of started with Luther, but didn't limit myself there. Started looking at Mm. all of these figures and what they had to say. Some were surprising. Others were fairly, you know, as expected, but it was Calvin that really gripped me. Like he he wasn't saying the things I thought he was going to say. He didn't necessarily sound like a medieval scholastic or even a later reformed scholastic. Frankly, it was the sort of surprise at encountering Calvin's eschatology that, that made me realize there's something here. And so with the encouragement of my advisor at Baylor, he affirmed like, yeah, I haven't seen this. I've been reading Calvin scholarship for a while. This yeah. looks new. You, you really ought to chase this. And before I knew it, I was proposing a dissertation on Calvin and, and have gone from there. Cool. That's great. So um, we want to talk a little bit about the beatific vision. And um, I think it might be helpful for our listeners just to say what that is. And then um, maybe if you could, Stephen, give us some of the ways that that's been talked about in the Christian tradition. And then 
what is Calvin's specific vision of the beatific vision? How does his fit into this overall picture? So the beatific vision, I think at the most basic level, is seeing God, right? The vision of mm-hmm. God, visio dei. Uh, and it, beatific because it, it blesses us, it makes us happy, right? The human fulfillment is to encounter God. Uh, and it's funny, in the, in the literature, seeing is probably the most common uh, metaphor or, or image used. But actually, Christian writers down the centuries will use all kinds of sensory language to describe that encounter. It's seeing God, but it's also tasting God, being filled with God's presence. It's hearing the divine music. Uh, hmm. I mentioned Luther a moment ago. Luther has this really fascinating sermon on 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about, we won't need to eat in the kingdom of God, not because we won't have bodies, we will have bodies, but because seeing God will be our food and it will fill us and it'll feel like eating a full meal. He's very sort of, as Luther can be, right? Very graphic yeah. um, yeah. Uh, about that. And so it's all of our senses, all of who we are points towards this, um, this experience, this, this vision that completes us as creatures. And that, that is the beatific vision. And then I, I think the second part of the question is, um, how has it been talked about and, and what is specific to Calvin? Yeah. Um, the idea of seeing God is in scripture. I mean, it sort of begins yeah. with, with the most basic sources, First uh, John 3, um, we shall see him when we will be like him, right? That, that when we we're made like Christ, we, we shall see him. Um, but scripture also has some tensions on that point. I, I know, Beth, you work on Johannine literature. There's also the line in John's gospel, no one has seen God. Yeah. And so the the Christian tradition has wrestled with both of those poles. How do we make how do we square that circle that on the one hand, no one has seen God, and yet um people in the Old Testament, like Moses, are said in some sense to have seen God. The promise of seeing God is held out by that by that same writer, right? John. And, and so how does all of this fit? Um, the Christian tradition tends to narrate the beatific vision then as the end of a journey. Uh, that, that throughout life we grow in our capacity to see and experience God. And even after this life in the middle ages, the journey through purgatory often is, is seen as a sort of um, expansion of ourselves, uh, increase of our capacity to experience God. Um, and that's sort of where Calvin fits, I think in terms of his unique contribution, because in Western theology in particular, there's this movement and I try to trace it in the book of increasingly sort of shunting the embodied experience of God, the, the resurrection in the vision, which in early Christian thought, like in Irenaeus of Lyon and Chrysostom and, and others were always united that to be resurrected is to be the creature that can see God. That had increasingly sort of been separated as, as purgatory became more of a focus for medieval eschatology. It's really more about the soul, not necessarily the resurrected self seeing God to the point you get to say Thomas Aquinas it becomes sort of a point of orthodoxy um, that the the soul, apart from the resurrection, experiences the beatific vision. Calvin comes into that sort of Western conversation in the 1500s and and just sort of says a sharp no. Cal- Calvin wants to sort of return to that earlier mode of insisting that resurrection and vision go together. Mm-hmm. The reason for that, and I try to trace this in the book as well, is I think Calvin is reading early Christian sources, sometimes to an extent that medieval writers could not. Uh, Calvin has the benefit of living on the other side of the printing revolution. And so he has editions of Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, one had been put out by Erasmus, had edited it. Um, mm-hmm. He has editions of Chrysostom. He has, he has these sources um, 
gathered together in ways that medieval writers didn't always. And one of the most fun things I got to do as a part of my PhD research is I convinced Baylor to to pay for me to go to Geneva for several weeks during one summer in 2019. And I got to sort of go through Calvin's mail. I got to go to the University of Geneva and handle his copy of Irenaeus's Against Heresies and read his Marginalia, which was fairly extensive, and, and just see the evidence before my eyes that he had carefully read Irenaeus. He had read Chrysostom. He had read Bernard, who I talk about a lot in the book as well. These sources were shaping how he was talking about the beatific vision, it, it, which makes him on the one hand sort of deeply Catholic, deeply traditional, but on the other hand, technically led him to a place that is uh, heretical by late medieval standards that, mm. um, it had become a point of orthodoxy that the, the soul apart from the body experiences the beatific vision and mm. Calvin rejects that idea. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to jump a little bit around in our questions, but it feels like a natural thing to talk a little bit about something you raised as this tension within the Bible about, God's presence and the idea of being face-to-face with God. Because one of the things that's really interesting is that the tension you're describing, um, we see in Exodus itself, like in Exodus 33, we have even within one chapter, the chapter where we often see Moses who sees God face-to-face like a friend. A couple of passages just a couple of verses later, it says, and that he's not that he does he can't see him or he will die. So it's really interesting because I think this idea that the tension is through the Old Testament, does Moses see God face to face or doesn't he? In the New Testament, who sees God? How do they see God? That these are all um, a part of what seems to be what Calvin seems to be thinking about in these conversations. Um, something I think is really interesting about it. Um, is the question of embodiment and resurrection. And so um, could you talk a little bit more about Calvin and why um, why it matters we have that journey and the fullness in the resurrection? Can you just talk a little bit about more about that? I think, Cal, and w- one of the sort of large meta connections I'm trying to draw in the book is between Calvin and Irenaeus of Lyon in particular. Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of evidence that Calvin is reading Irenaeus carefully. And so one of the, the quotes that is often used to sum up Irenaeus' eschatology is, um, it's from Against Heresies, book five, it's the, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. Mm. That the, the beatific vision is the end goal of the whole human person. Mm. And so because we are created body and soul, for us to experience that end, that telos of human life, we must be complete human beings. Uh, the other aspect to that for both Irenaeus and Calvin is the idea that be, to become complete human beings, we have to be in union with the prototypical human being who is, who is Christ. That union with Christ is, is the guiding theme, not only of Calvin's soteriology, but also his eschatology. That as Christ went on a journey, and, and Calvin will say this explicitly, taking from Irenaeus and others, Christ himself uh in a sense, had to go on a journey to, to, to reach his goal that um, from the cross to, to the grave, to, to resurrection, it was only at resurrection he then ascends. Um, we have to sort of go through a similar journey in that we, we, we go through this life, we die, but then we are resurrected and, and taken into glory in, in the fullest sense. And so our journeys parallel directly or follow after Christ's journey because... 
he, he's the pathfinder. He, he, he's the one who paves the way before us. And, and our salvation is only possible because we're in union with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I, I don't know. Do you have more on that, Beth? No, I actually thought that led really nicely into your question about salvation that I know you yeah. wanted to ask. So this is, yeah, it's, sorry, I'm, I'm getting excited here, Stephen, but I'm, I'm very interested in the connection. I'm also interested in how this connects to the spirit and his doctrine of God, but specifically, how does this connect to his vision of, of final things, his doctrine of final things to his doctrine of salvation? How are they connected? So again, I think the the key words there are are union, union cum Christo, union with Christ, but also a word I repeat throughout the book a lot: cursus or or, or journey, uh, course in, in French. And he he repeats it in his sermons and his writings, the idea that all of life is is this journey, this cursus through um, through our initial sinful lostness to um, redemption redemption in this life through faith, but also growth and sanctification throughout this life. Calvin is, is very clear that, um, yes, we have faith, we're saved, but, but sanctification is the other gift that, you know, the twofold grace, mm-hmm. um, uh, of God, the, the other fold of that grace is that we grow throughout, um, this life. And then even at death and he, he's not, he doesn't want to talk about purgatory, although some mm-hmm. of, and I mentioned this in the book, some of his Catholic opponents will, will sort of sneer at the purgatorium Calvinistarum, the, the purgatory of the Calvinists, uh, mm-hmm. because it, it is the case in, in some of his writings and psychopanachy and others that he seems to indicate a journeying or a wayfaring sort of continues even after death, not in any kind of penal sense or that we're, you know, atoning for sin or anything like that. He wouldn't want to say that it wouldn't fit yeah. with the rest of his soteriology, but the sense that we are growing and yearning. It, absolutely. In fact, he says in his commentary on first Corinthians 15, um, that we are always in a state of longing until the last day. Even even as departed souls, we long to see the last day. He also liked um, Revelation 6, the souls under the altar that are crying out, how long, O Lord? He saw that as fairly clear evidence that even souls who are redeemed still long, they still wait uh, for the day. And it, only at the day of resurrection has the fullness come. And so that curses, that journey continues in this life and even after this life and culminates in the eschaton and the vision of God. And, and because it's a journey, um, both redemption and beatific vision um, can't help but go together, right? Beatific vision is the end of the journey as salvation is the journey itself. So in your book, you um, you talk a little bit about how this shows up in Calvin's work where he's responding to Anabaptist's idea of his soul sleep. Could you could you talk a little bit about that the difference between the soul sleep idea that Calvin is speaking against and the picture that Calvin gives instead? So as I say in the book, it's unclear. Like Calvin may when he says Anabaptist, it's hard to know who he even means. Um, Particularly, Psychopanachia is is so early in his career, begun in the 1530s, only published in 42. Um, it could well be he's not even reading any specific Anabaptists. He's sort of responding to something in the air. Zwingli has writ- wrote against Anabaptist soul sleep. Bullinger had already by the 1530s. And so it had almost become a trope that, that we evangelicals, we, we reform people are not like those Anabaptists. And there are all sorts of reasons they don't want to be like the Anabaptists both political and theological. Um, that being said, I do think there are real substantive 
theological differences, um, whether any actual Anabaptists believe this or not. Um, the, the idea that you see later in the tradition, John Milton and other English writers will, will adopt this idea of the interim state, the time between death and physical resurrection is a sort of unconscious slumber. It's um, that you sort of go to sleep and pop up and it's the last day um, in the care of God. It's not that you, you cease to exist or anything, but you, you are in a deep sleep. Interestingly, in his late career, Martin Luther toyed with ideas like that. It, it's not something the later Lutheran tradition um, picks up. In fact, the later Lutheran tradition rejects that, but Luther is at least open to the idea. There's a passage in Luther's Genesis commentaries where he talks about when Adam awakes on the day of the resurrection, it'll be like, no time has passed at all. He'll be surprised to see all these people around. Um, and so those ideas are very much in the air in Calvin's world, even if it, we struggle to trace his specific reading. Um, he doesn't want that. He, he, he wants a conscious interim state, an interim state in which souls are glorying in God, are glorying in Christ, and yet still longing, still not complete, uh, still not seeing God in the fullest sense. First Corinthians 13, he talks about the nearer vision of God, propinquior um, aspectus, and the plena visio, the full vision of God. That, that um, And th- those are not just, you get the sense, those are not just differences in degrees, but also even in kind. There's mm. There's a difference in the vision of the final resurrected saints. They can now see a fullness that was not available to them before because they were not fully, re- in a sense, not fully redeemed before. They were not fully redeemed until body and soul we are restored because human beings are body and soul. We're not just souls. Um, I, I sometimes tell students, if God had wanted souls or he wanted more angels, he could have made souls and angels. Instead, he made us as embodied beings. And that's not incidental. That's essential to who we are. And Calvin recognizes that. That's that's helpful, Stephen. So this connects to things I'm interested in. But um, how do you think this all connects to human well-being and happiness, and um, this idea of this vision of God for Calvin? So it's funny. In my own American Texan context, eschatology can be a scary word, right? Mm-hmm. You have, you know, bless them. You've got preachers that, that embrace eschatology and sort of end of the world sense. And for that reason, I think a lot of American, I don't know about the Canadian context as much, but a lot of American evangelicals shy away from any discussion of eschatology or they sort of give it a shrug, like, eh, whatever's true will be true. Um, but let's not, let's not dive too deeply into that, you know, for fear that we'll sort of get out into strange, strange waters. Um, I, I guess I'd want to push back against that, that eschatology properly understood is not about visions of a fiery end of the world. It's, it's about the last things, right? The eschaton in the sense of the goal or, or the, the telos towards which everything is moving. And just like in a race, you have to know where you're headed, right? Where, where the finish line is. Knowing what the goal of human life is cannot help but shape how we live human life now. Mm-hmm. And so if we have a clear understanding, I think Calvin would agree the, the, the vision of God, the resurrection of not only our bodies, but the entire embodied world. I have a chapter in the book that specifically focuses on the resurrection of non-human bodies um, and Calvin's thought that they're the cosmic redemption. Um, if, if we understand all of that, then the way we journey towards that day will reflect that goal, that, that if our bodies matter, if the embodied world matters, 
if, if seeing God is the highest form of happiness, the, the highest eudaimonia, naturally it, it, it's going to put all other lesser forms of happiness in their proper perspective. Um, that uh, I think he's very Augustinian in that way too, that, that rightly ordering our loves, rightly ordering um, the degrees of happiness will, will lead to right living now. Um, mm-hmm. All of that's only possible with eschatology. And, and so I, one of my, my hobby horses is to try to convince Christians in my own context, it, it's okay to talk about the end. You know, we, we're not necessarily talking about made-for-TV movies with planes blowing up in the sky. Like, that's not really what eschatology is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to recover that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something I really appreciate about that, you know, um, my husband also works in eschatology. And one of the things he talks about is like, unless we, unless we start from the end, it's hard to know where we are now. Um, And something I appreciate about that is the sense of one of the one of the struggles that modern Christians have sometimes is a, such a strong emphasis on the soul or on the spirit that there is um, that, that it's almost like that's all that we are, or that's all that matters. Um, and that sense of that eschatological vision, that sense of, um, of understanding the redemption of all things um, and the value of our bodies and resurrection as a piece of that, you know, really helps us to think about, well, what is, how do our bodies matter now? Um, what does it mean to, to see and to value um, the world that's around us. Um, and I think that's, that's just such a, a valuable and important thing, I think, for so many people. And so thank you so much, Diva, for that piece. Um, well, and that actually kind of transitions us a little bit into our next conversation, which is in our second part of the show, we always focus on how does this scholarship connect to the church and to Christian life? And so I would, um, I'd love to, to hear a little bit more um, about what the church has meant to you across your life and also how you see Calvin's theology being valuable for Christians today. So as I mentioned, I, I didn't grow up in the church. Um, and, and so the church has been, it's funny, it's been an adult experience for me, but I've also been a youth pastor and I'm now teaching in a Christian high school. So I, I sort of teach Christian youth. And so I, I've had sort of a an interesting relationship that I watch others grow up in the church in a way I did not. Um, but that has also meant that as I hit that critical age of going into my undergraduate studies, trying to figure out who I was going to be, I, like I said, I knew I wanted to, to go into scholarship. I, I felt a gift of teaching. Um, but, but how was that going to be directed? Wise mentors, um, both pastoral, but also just wise people in my community were with me every step of the way. That was true in the local church, is true in seminary. Um, I should give a shout out at Fuller Seminary, uh, John Thompson, the scholar I got to know very well, is still mm-hmm. a dear friend. He, he was a critical guide along the path. He's probably to blame for the Calvin studies more than anyone else. It's all, <laughs> it's all John's fault. Um, he, the, the, every step, it seems God has put people in my life when I needed them to sort of show me the way. And so I think Calvin's image of, the journey has always appealed to me because that has felt very much like my experience with the church has been a journey, uh, both spiritually and also geographically. I have, for whatever reason, have moved around quite a bit. Um, although I'm pretty, pretty settled in Texas now, I think. Um, so I, I couldn't imagine doing it and, and going through all of those stages without the local church um, alongside me. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and so, Stephen, kind of thinking about Calvin, what do you think Calvin might have to teach the modern church about 
itself, um, about um, what the church is and how it should function in the world. I think the key word for Calvin in the church is, is probably covenant, um, in the sense that the church is the people of God in, in, in covenant with God. And so, and this is sort of a thing for Reformed theology more broadly, um, the idea that both the individual's life, but also the, the church as a whole is structured around a rhythm of grace and gratitude. The, the thinking about Exodus, um, God says to Israel, I am the Lord, your God who delivered you out of, of Egypt. Grace, right? I, I have saved you. And now here are, here's how you're going to live. Here are the 10 commandments. Here, here's how you express that. And, and so that rhythm of, of grace being saved and then responding to that grace shapes not only individual lives, but sort of the life of the church as a whole. And I think on the one hand, that that's a, it, it's a mighty calling. I mean, God also says there that we are to be a kingdom of priests and that sort of priestly image, the priesthood of all believers is, is a foundational, not just to Calvin, but to really Protestantism in general, I think. Um, so it's a mighty calling, but it also, I think in terms of the modern church, maybe can be a relief. I think the church sometimes feels it needs to be a whole variety of things. It really doesn't need to be. It needs to be entertaining. It needs to be um, uh, pr- provide all of these services to convince people they need to care. Um, fundamentally, the church is where we we hear the word and and respond to the word. That that we receive the word of grace and then we respond to it and and progressively change lives and, and lives of gratitude and love of neighbor. Um, at the end of the day, if the word is preached and, and people respond to it, the church is being the church. Um, and and I, I think that can be a relief, particularly in a, you know, a, the United States can be sort of a religious free market where we're all trying to get the attention of everyone else. Yeah. Um, the, the, the comfort of knowing if we're hearing the word and responding to the word, we are the church um, can be a very liberating message at times, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, something I found interesting in your book is the interaction between like the individual Christian life and the sort of communal picture of it. Um, as you think about, as you're speaking about this idea of the beatific vision and eschatology, when you think about it shaping our understanding of Christian life, um, is that a personal and communal? And would you say that there's different factors you'd emphasize if you're going to talk about one versus the other? I think for for Calvin and a lot of the sources he's working with, and here maybe the even more than Irenaeus, the key figure is is Chrysostom. Um, that one of the most surprising things I came across when I was reading Chrysostom and Calvin and, and sort of how Calvin uses Chrysostom is this sermon Chrysostom preaches on Hebrews eleven, which is the by faith chapter, and at the end of that chapter, there's that little line: um, "These did not." Uh, these people did not yet uh, receive their reward, um, so they might not be saved without us. Chrysostom takes that that verse, which I'm probably paraphrasing badly, and, and makes the claim, sort of startling, that the, the saints cho- the saints even choose not to be saved until the whole church is saved. That that Paul and, and John, who who are departed, yet sit uncrowned, and Chrysostom uses the word uncrowned. Um, so that they can be crowned with us, that they are so identified with the whole people of God, not by any kind of compulsion, but by, by choice, that they have found themselves in relation to the, to the people of God, 
that they, it's almost like they couldn't conceive of being saved without the whole people. And so in terms of the Old Testament, they love the vision of Moses and a lot of these writers um, who work within this tradition will bring up the moment where God offers Moses um, the chance to like, let, let, let's get rid of Israel and let's start over, right? I'll start over with you. And Moses says, no, Lord, then, you know, the, the, the nations will say you brought the people out to the, the wilderness to die. And Moses in that moment as a good mediator chooses to be with the people. Um, and that, that for, for Chrysostom, for Calvin it is a sign that we find ourselves most truly in relationship to the whole church, the church across time and space. And that's not just sort of a nice sentiment. It really has bearing on how salvation is conceived that individual souls cannot be saved in the fullest sense precisely because the whole church is not yet saved and, and that um, the whole church body and soul is not yet redeemed. And so we, we will be saved with the people. Um, mm. I, I think that may rub, it's not the vision of salvation, I think, that is taught in many churches I've been a part of, um, which is more individualistic, which is mm-hmm. the emphasis is on the soul. It might even sort of rub people the wrong way because they think it's almost like they're being held back from something. Like, why do I have to wait for all the rest of these people? That, that's not really it. It's more when you are redeemed, you will become the kind of creature that, that so identifies with the people of God that it, it, it's almost like you wouldn't want it. You can't be saved without the whole people. Hmm. Hmm. I'm interested in like how that connects to what we talked about. That's fascinating um, about happiness before. It's almost as if um, there's, I'm wondering if there's some sort of connection here where it's like a person can't find their well-being until, you know, that others find their well-being. Like there, there's some sort of, um, I don't know, just um, unification, I guess, to that idea of union that, that you mentioned before. I, would you agree with that, Stephen? Is that kind of the idea going on here? It, absolutely. And and I think my, my favorite literary image of that is, is not in Calvin, it's actually in Dante, in, in Dante's mm-hmm. um, Purgatorio. Um, the vision of all of us is sort of a mirror reflecting the divine light. And when one of us reflects the divine light, the more mirrors there are, the brighter it becomes. It's not just a bunch of individuals enjoying God. It's the more mirrors gathered around the light, the more we all reflect each other and it just gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And so the, the fullness of salvation requires the people of God. It's, we're not just all sort of individually um, sitting in a room enjoying God somehow. It's the, 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 the experience of God with us corporately is part of, it's part of happiness, part of that final eudaimonia. Uh, mm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting about that is, you know, whenever I teach, um, we teach Genesis 2, um, one of the things I talk about is this idea of it's not good for for man to be alone. Um, We tend to read that as like, I don't know about marriage or something else. And I, I tend to read it. There's certainly theologians who read it this way as about the nature of human beings and our need for each other as a part of what well-being looks like. Um, and so it's really interesting to think about that, that reflection as we see this directly after the conversation about the image of God in Genesis 1 and then this idea of our need for one another. Um, and so I love that that's reflected. I love that that's reflected in Calvin's theology and in this broader picture of the idea of that process of salvation together. Um, it's really powerful. So, yeah. 
I think, and yeah, just to add to what you're saying, but in our modern age, I think sometimes it's easy to think about like the perfect day is like you, you know, like just having all the things you could want and just like watching your favorite, you know, it's just like, it's like a kind of isolated, like it's like you're at the center of, you know, whatever, like, um, of, uh, we, we talk about like personal fulfillment or what, you know what I mean? Like it Mm. can become Mm -hmm. very, and it's interesting to think about that fulfillment requires, um, like a, a community um yeah and like that community finding its fulfillment as well so yeah that thanks for sharing that's powerful to me um yeah um i was gonna ask about classical uh christian education but did you have a question beth or uh no i just i feel like that's a great place to go yeah so so um we were talking about this before we began recording, but um, something we all share in common is we've all been involved in classical education and we've all taught Latin. So um, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, that with you, Stephen. And so um, I, I would just love to hear a little about your experience of classical uh, uh, Christian education, what brought you to the movement, and uh, what you, you think this movement might add to the church. And if you you see any uh, areas for growth um, within the movement, or some people would call it a renewal, I know. But um, so, yeah, if you could speak to those things. So, my journey into classical education it was part sort of passion, part need. I, I was coming to the end of my PhD program. And um, here in Waco, there, there's a wonderful classical school, Live Oak Classical. Um, and it just so happened, just as I was finishing my program, they were hiring um, at the time, it was history, literature, and Latin. Uh, I mostly focus on history now, although I've taught both literature and Latin as well. And, mm-hmm. and may again, depending on the need. Um, yeah. and, and so I, I was intrigued. I had heard about classical education and, and was even interested in it um, for my own daughter um, and, and the chance to sort of teach in a classical school and, and thereby also send my daughter to the school um, was really attractive. And, and in my own sense of vocation, uh, I see class uh, teaching in classical schools as something more PhDs should be thinking about uh, mm-hmm. that it, I have not found it, it difficult to continue um, the life of scholarship, continue writing um, as I teach in, in a classical school. Maybe even I may even have more freedom in some ways than some of my friends who pursued more traditional, you know, tenure track um, pursuits. Not that there's anything wrong with the sort of more traditional uh, life of scholarship. Um, but what classical teaching allows you to do is, is both use your the the expertise you've built up, you know, in your PhD, but also by by choice and by design, sort of connect it to this broad range of the entire Western tradition, mm-hmm. um, where you, you'll learn very quickly. Students can only hear so much about Calvin, and so I I have I've been forced to sort of learn all sorts of things. I frankly had only skimmed before and it's pushed me to dive more deeply. I'm reading a history of the Byzantine empire right now. I knew enough about the Byzantine empire to get by before, but it's actually, I've been spurred to learn and to grow um, as a result of my teaching there. And while, while working with teenagers is not always a joy. Um, They they do have this sort of like huge curiosity and huge uh, energy it can be infectious. You can pick up on it. And all of a sudden when they're excited about something, you realize like, this is cool. Yeah. This is, mm-hmm. um, I remember what it was like to, to see everything with these eyes, to see things that are new, to sort of have the wonder that they have. And, and you get to experience that. Um, whereas, you know, I've taught undergrad classes too, and that's been 
a wonderful experience, but my experience is sometimes undergrads are just there to get through their program and, and move on to the next step. They High schoolers have that sense of wonder still um, that I appreciate. So, you know, I mean, you're obviously a busy guy um, with teaching and doing your academic research. So what in your spiritual life helps you to keep close to God? Regular, so it's funny, you teach in a classical school, you read lots of books, particularly if you're in the humanities. And so it, it can, I'll admit, it can feel like, oh, I need, I need to read scripture. It's like something else to read. Um, but making sure that, that I'm disciplined, particularly for me, the Psalms have been a great source of um, spiritual comfort and, and um, also correction at times that praying the Psalter regularly, I use the, um, although I'm not Anglican, I use the Book of Common Prayers uh, path for praying through the Psalms every month. And even, you know, some months I don't get through all the, the Psalms, I, I'll confess, but even the attempt, right, to sort of stay regularly praying the Psalms uh, has been sort of a key um, cornerstone in, in my spiritual life. Um, and, and also sort of taking moments to sort of Sabbath, to, to, to have moments of rest uh, that it, it can be very busy when you're teaching uh, six periods as I am, I have three preps, six periods, and I'm also trying to main, uh, maintain an active writing life and mm-hmm. also most importantly, be a good husband and father. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be very busy during the day. And so making sure to carve out times to just rest. Um, I end up being better at all the rest of the things because I do that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, I want to transition us to our very last section of the show, which we call marginalia. Um, And I mean, I think that all the questions we've been discussing are kind of fun questions, but these are fun questions specifically designed to get to know you better, Steve, um, as a person. So um, I'm going to start with what I think is kind of a softball. Um, what's a show or movie that you're really into right now? And that, and what is it about it that you love? So my, my daughter is nine and, and we have the, the Mario Brothers movie on repeat in my house. So whether I, <laughs> I want to be into it or not, I am into it. And, and to be honest, I, I shouldn't even front. I am into it. Like we, <laughs> uh, so my daughter and I have... At, you know, when she was little, we would play with her, her ponies or whatever, and we'd play that way. And now she's a little too big for that. So we've discovered that we, we can both watch Mario and also play Mario together. Uh, and that, that's great time with dad, you know, <laughs> hanging out. Um, and, and so there's been a lot of Mario stuff in my house lately. That's probably the, the main media. I guess if I, if I want to sound a little more adult here on the recording, I'm also very excited for the Napoleon movie that's coming out. Ridley Scott's, uh, Napoleonic epic. One of my sort of side passions is French history in general. And wow. so I, w- I will definitely be first in line this Thanksgiving to see Napoleon. Awesome. Well, I wanted, I just wanted to say something about the Mario movie. So um, I was in Chile in August and um, the Mario movie has been like on repeat with my son as well, who is in love of that. And especially the song like peaches, 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 peaches. So I get to Chile and I'm spending time with the family of the dean of the school where I'm teaching. Um, and his son starts singing in Spanish, peaches, 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 peaches. And I recognized it. Universal and I was language. like, yes, it's the universal language of Mario. So I thought I would share that with you. There you go. You know, you know, it's just what it needs to happen. So Most <laughs> ecumenical of franchises. Mm-hmm. Hasn't it grossed like, I don't know, a trillion. I don't know. I don't know what, but just it, it's, it's in the billion dollar club. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. So, <laughs> and they're probably working on Mario. 
the like the next twenty movies of this <laughs> you know, probably, sequels, probably you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're like they're, they're, let's keep it going kind of thing you know but um yeah well um so steven if you could describe yourself in three words um, what would they be uh enthusiastic nerd and coffee <laughs> coffee is that that the coffee is what's supporting the enthusiastic it, nerd it is, it is. otherwise i'm just, i mean yeah. otherwise i'm an irritable nerd yeah yeah coffee yeah, no, I am an enthusiast. Uh, nerd. But yeah, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's funny. So, well, that's great. That's, yeah, that's awesome. What What are a few books that you've been reading recently that really impacted you? So I try to keep my reading varied. I try not to get in, in a rut. I have a literature background in my undergrad undergraduate studies, as I said, but I'm also a history teacher and a historian. Um, so I try to I, I try to have a variety. So right now, um, I've read The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Um, by Beth Barr. And um, Beth was one of my teachers at Baylor, and she continues to teach me through that book and, and has sort of challenged me to incorporate more women's voices into the way I, I teach history um, at the high school level and write about history academically. I'm also reading an academic biography of Henri IV of France, sort of that, that side passion in French history that I mentioned. And then finally, it's a work of fiction. I'm always trying to read fiction as well. I'm reading um, Howl's Moving Castle. I had seen the Miyazaki animated film and really loved it. And it heard the book was different, but also really good. And I would affirm that they're very different in some ways, but both really good. Um, if you enjoy fantasy, I, I recommend it. Um, and it's just sort of a nice palate cleanser. You're reading sort of the heavy historiography and then you can go on adventures uh, with wizards. It, it sort of, it helps keep me, I think, balanced. It also, I think, makes me a better teacher um, that I think good teaching at some level is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so paying attention to how good stories are told helps me communicate history, um, to students more effectively. That's really wonderful. Um, what's the best compliment you've ever been given? So when I told, uh, my daughter that I was going to have a book published, she was very excited. Uh, because she loves to read. She, she's very into the Percy Jackson novels right now. And so she, she's a very voracious reader. And she's like, so what's the story about? And, and I had to inform her. It wasn't, in fact, a fiction book. It was a work <laughs> yeah. of academic historical theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could tell she was disappointed. You know? and, and honestly, who wouldn't be? I'd rather write fantasy novels too. You know? and, um, but she said, Dad, I will try to read it. And so she, she really cares if she's going to try. I, I expect she won't get very far. It's it, boring even to me sometimes. But <laughs> the fact she's willing to try um, shows she really cares. And so I take that as a very great compliment. That is a great compliment. Wow. Well, that's a wonderful way, I think, to, to end our interview. Um, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, Steve. Um, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to help us, please share this podcast with others. Subscribe on your podcast player. Connect more with us on bridgingtheology.com or on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds at Bridging Theology.